Greetings and welcome to Office Hours. If you are new here and you want to learn a little bit more about what we do, head over to officehours.global. Our first hour, we answer your questions on media and digital productions. Our second hour is something that we typically want to spend a little bit more time on. And today we'll be discussing time management. They say we all have the same amount of time, but how is it that you are being productive? We'll answer those questions in the second hour. And speaking of questions... Bill, let's get into it. Our first one this morning comes from Foon Shakdoji in Dharamshala, India. And the question is, my friend wanted to buy a Sennheiser EW100 portable wireless mic. That's the 100 ENG G4-A. The vendor sent him a photo of the box where the word adapter is spelt A-D-A-P-A-T-E-R in one place. Chinese copycat. And then he's got a link there to it. Go ahead, Mitchell. Well, I'm a notorious bad speller, but I'm not a Chinese copycat. Um, It might be. I mean, here's the thing. The general rule of thumb, and it's really about security on buying things from sites you don't recognize, is always be careful. And always, always, if the price is too good to be true, it probably is. Hey, Courtney. Well, you uh, take that picture and send it off to Sennheiser and ask them. and They'll tell you if it's uh, a knockoff or not, for sure. Uh, but a lot of these companies, you know, uh, farm out their printing to China. So if they have to do a big production run, and that is one of their most popular microphones, the 100 series, they sell a whole lot of them. So they may be having their printing done in China and just never bothered to proofread the, the packaging when, it, when you know, 500,000 of them came back. And Bill? The first time I was ever in Manhattan as a young man, I was wandering down through the electronics area and uh, I thought, wow, look at the price on that very cool product that I really wanted. And I kept saying, but there's something a little odd going on here. And then I realized the name was Panasonic, but it had an O in the middle of it in the wrong place. And I went, hmm, people have been saying beware. So I think uh, most of the major manufacturers do not do printing errors. So whenever I see something that's misspelled, I always call that a red flag. And go ahead, Alex. Yeah, it's one thing to see it in a press release or in some kind of promo material, but the amount of cost that goes on with the boxes, it would be very rare for a large corporation to um, have a typo. So I would assume that it's a counterfeit. And Courtney? Funny story, this is this is to tell you always proofread everything before it goes to the final. I did a film uh, in film school and I did the credits. And we, back then we had to send them off to a typesetter who would typeset them and create a, a codolith. And then you'd get the codolith back, you put it in a light box and shoot it with film. We got through that whole process and the credits came up in the final answer print. Uh, and it said, a flim by... F-L-I-M. Oh, no. Instead of F-I-L-M. <laughs> Everywhere the word film appeared, it was F-L-I-M. The typesetter made a mistake, but we didn't catch it until it came up in the answer. And Bill? Since we're doing anecdotes about typos, uh, somebody once pointed out that on the very first interstellar satellite, somebody had written uh, in the year... 1967 A.D., and then somebody came back and said, well, technically in Latin, the A.D. and a domini or whatever it is, is supposed to come before the number. So our first intergalactic communication had a typo. That always made me feel better from that point on. (laughs) 
Next question. Next one comes to us from Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Help, I need a baby pin coming out of the top of, and he's got a link there to the product. I thought Matthews had one that would go into the pipe, uh, but I can't find it. Jason? So if you look in the user's manual, I, I don't see any space for a baby pin. If you can adapt it, you know, of course, a standard baby pin like like this one um, is available for the sliding piece, but not for the top. I think you would actually have to add another piece to the top of that. And I can't find it either. Alex. Yeah, you can oftentimes look for it. So Cardellini makes a lot of different things. And one of them they make, and I don't know if it'll fit this one specifically, is a, a 5 8 inch baby pin to one inch post adapter. You can find that probably on Adorama and other places like that. Um, film tools. So you're looking for that post adapter from Cardellini. Of course, you could, in a pinch, take Cardellini. The Cardellinis um, also have clamps. So if you need to do something today, you could order a clamp that would, a Cardellini clamp that would just let you just spin it on and just attach it in any direction that you needed to. There's lots of Cardellinis. So, um, so that, that would probably one way to just kind of manage that, but they do have different things that are designed to go on the end of posts that will give you that baby pin back. And of course, if you have, uh, a, an arc welder, <laughs> you can build, you can take something that will go on top of that and, um, and then weld the baby pin. We, we weld a lot of baby pins onto things, um, to, because it's just, uh, you know, they're specific and then we have a generalized, uh, connection to that piece of, of, uh, metal. Mitchell. Alex, would that be the same way you could get a, a baby pin on the, on the end of a, uh, C-stand? Well, the C-stand has, I mean, the C-stand generally, uh, uh, ends with a baby pin. I mean, it, it, it ends with what is a baby pin. So the C, a typical C stand will end that way. Now, where you might not see that as a junior stand that has wheels and it's much larger, is going to come up with a, a larger head. And at that point, there are definitely adapters for that that will convert that to a baby pin. And Courtney. Yeah, I was just going to say the other thing you could do is just slide the offset arm up to the top. Sorry, uh, <laughs> I disappeared. Offset. There we go. And it has a baby pin on it. So if it's slid up to the top and you can move that baby pin closer to the center post, if you want. Uh, I'm invisible. Okay. I'm sorry. We're doing some magic this morning. <laughs> Next question. My is all messed up. Jeez, I'm sorry. Next question. Next question comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Where can I get a recipe to turn my three 40-foot-high cube cargo containers, or Konex, into an audio-video studio that could be transported? What do you estimate it would cost? Bill, go ahead. Well, if you're actually trying to do work out of it, it would probably cost a lot. And the reason I say that is because, first and foremost, those containers are a bit hard to work with. They are typically flat wall cubes and that is one of the most difficult audio environments to work in so you're going to have to put a lot of if nothing else sound abatement stuff inside which is going to lower the amount of space you have to work in also think about airflow which is very difficult so i think you're engaging a lot of welders to cut into the sides of these things and make it a livable, workable environment. It's probably going to be a lot more expensive and a lot more difficult than it looks on the outside. And I think at some point, that's why people mostly go with trailers rather than shipping containers in terms of remote production vehicles. And Alex? 
Yeah, it's really the transport for those containers that make them hard because you still have to load them onto a flatbed uh, and uh, and then be able to try. It seems like it'd be easier, but it would be, as Bill said, easier to get usually a production trailer. And you can get those if you look at MarkerTech. They have some. I used to own one. Uh, it was a 24 foot, um, uh, a uh, 24 foot MarkerTech trailer, and you're going to find that to be a lot easier to build a small production. If you really want to use these, uh, I have two words for you: plasma cutter <laughs> because that's what you're going to need uh so basically you can do a lot of other things you can use an acetyl oxyacetylene torch but the plasma cutter is way more fun and uh, so you just ground that thing and, and you can sit there and just draw little lines and cut holes out of it and you're going to need holes you know obviously for your cabling you're going to want to build um connection points and the way that i believe that um you know some large racing organizations um, use use these uh, containers uh, to do a lot of these types of things, but they build them out. And one of the things they do is they really build big cables that pretty much have all the connections in them that move from one to the other um, to build that out. And so you could build something into that I, as, as uh, it it probably, it's not so much, it would probably be less expensive than buying a, you know, so a production trailer empty, I think is about 30 grand. Um, and uh, you can get them used for 15 or $20,000. Um, it's going to cost you at least that to, to convert just the mechanics of these um, out, you know, to do this. So you're going to, it's going to cost you, at, I, I would say 20 grand to 30 grand, unless you do it all yourself. It's going to cost you a lot of money to bring specialists into, to, and that's not that's before you add the electronics. And the electronics will scale up to as much money as you have, um, as far as how much you put into the into the uh, containers themselves. But it would be cool to build something that was stationary that did that. That's kind of cool. Go ahead, Jason. I have a client who has built two kind of shopping centers out of these, um, and I've had to put infrastructure in them. It's um, it's. It's not easy. It's kind of an acoustical and cooling nightmare. And, and because of the design, you get a ton of slapback. So good luck. But yeah, it, it's doable. And Chris. You know, Paul, I would think the, the only place that would really benefit from building this into a Connex is if you were going to actually ship it, like put it on a boat, I think, because that's what they're designed for. But if you're like, building something to like go into town to do, you know, South by Southwest or something. I totally agree with what everybody else is saying. Put it into a trailer or something like that. Um, what I would do if I had three 40-foot Connex boxes and all of your land is I would build like a modular stacked up kind of cool home with them. Maybe make one the second floor. That's what I'd do with them. And Alex. I'm going to second Chris's. When I saw that you had those trailers, the first thing I saw is that there are so many cool kind of high art uh, houses that are built with those containers. And three of them would build an awesome container. So The way you you do it is you put two of them about a container with a part. You Uh offset them to give you some some stuff. And then you put one across and then you build like an atrium in between the two that are separated Uh from each other. Yeah, that'd be awesome. Let's now, do that. Now, now you, yeah, let's go to. Is, is and, that then, and then add some projects? video. <laughs> add some video to the upstairs. And now you have your production. The upstairs it, container just make can a be video production. about making a house out of Connex containers yeah. instead of building a studio. You can put yeah. that in a trailer. Yeah. Much easier. <laughs> Next question. Pumsak Dorji is back from Dharamshala. Uh, greetings, panels. Uh, while deciding on a monitor for multi-view for ATEM SDI Extreme ISO, which factors should be considered? 60 or 75 hertz, the size, visa mounting, the brand, Dell, Samsung, or LG? Go ahead, Mitchell. 
I would go with um, uh, HP, believe it or not. I've got uh, two HP Z24Fs here. And here's the thing. 24 inches is a, is a sweet spot because you're definitely going to get 1080 out of it. And um, always buy the same monitor because you never know when you're going to mix and match things down the road. Um, I've had absolutely zero problems with this setup. And sometimes if you move things around, it's nice to know that you can get 1080 over here and you get 1080 and you get 1080 and you, well, you know how it goes. <laughs> Alex. Yeah, the... Um, uh the the main thing is is that I I use Dell Dell monitors I have a whole I have six of them here right now <laughs> so so they're uh, they are um, relatively inexpensive they're solid they work well they work with all the things and they fulfill the four, the three things that I have to have in a monitor which is I need a Visa mount I need a, a C13 power input so that's an IEC cable C13 and it needs an HDMI. So I need I need to have those things uh, in a monitor. If I have those, I'm then they're all in the same space. 1080p is is important for what you're doing. You don't need 4K, I don't think. Um, you could. The only reason you might use 4K is if you have um, if you want to display other things. So, for instance, if you use the SDI version of that extreme, you could theoretically be routing a bunch of things into some kind of four up split and then put it on there. And then, then the 4K makes a difference. If you're doing basically a multi-view inside of a multi-view, you could do the multi-view of your switcher, but then you could have program right next to it. But program is 1080p in a 4K in, in that split. Or you could have preview and program that are 1080p in that 4K split. And then you can have your multi-views down below. A lot of times if we're using multiple multi-views um, out of a bigger switcher, we might have preview and program on the top two quadrants. And then on the second two quadrants, we'll have the main multi-view and then the next multi-view, which is just a whole bunch of cameras and inputs and so on and so forth. And so you can stack up a 4K monitor with a lot of signal. So that's the only reason you might want to think about a 4K is if you think you might want to grow into that, you'll still need a 4K um, multi-view generator. <laughs> so that's that's going to cost you more money, but that's something to think about if that might be something you want to do in the future. Chris? Well done, Alex. You just spent all of his money. No, uh, what I was going to say for my job. is... It's, I know it's your job. Um, I uh, agree with everything I've heard so far, except, you know, Alex gets in the weeds sometimes. Uh, the the Dell monitors is the one that I'm using, and they're like a 175 bucks US. So it doesn't have to be super expensive. Keep in mind, when you're whenever you're buying monitors, there's two reasons you buy a monitor. To critique something or to just look at something. And the output of the multi-view you really just have to confirm that there's a signal there. You're not doing anything really critical. And so the the Dells that I bought uh, and put on the Visa mount, which I I really just learned, I really just sort of adopted Visa mounting in the last couple of years, and I really like it. Um, like I said, I think they were like 175 US. And Courtney. Well, there's some that are even cheaper than that. I was just looking at the Dell. The, they have this 27-inch SE27. It's full HD 27-inch. And I think it has a variety of inputs. The nice thing about the Dells is they have a variety of inputs, but they don't have SDI. And I don't know if the multi-view output on the ATM SDI is SDI or HDMI, but you might have to get a converter to convert from SDI to HDMI to go into that monitor if SDI is your only option for multi-view coming out. Uh, in that case, I would get a decimator, MDHX, to convert it. Uh, this one also supports um, uh, AMT, AMD FreeSync, which synchronizes the display's uh, refresh with the vertical sync pulse coming from the uh, from your computer. 
So that's good. There's no tearing or anything at any uh, higher, higher refresh rates. Next question. Next one comes to us from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut, I believe. No, I'm sorry. I got it wrong. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Apologies. Logitech bought Blue, you know, from the Blue Yeti and Snowball. A lot of podcasters have those. What do you think of these mics? And will Logitech keep evolving them? They cost around $40, but there's one model that is $3,000. Mitchell. Yeah, I like Blue, um, and I like Logic, Logitech. I think that all makes sense, and I think they make nice products at that price range. But I have absolutely no idea what that $3,000 Logitech microphone... I mean, like, think for a second. Neumann or Logitech? Hmm, I don't know. Bill? One of the metrics I use when I'm determining whether a piece of gear has any chance of being both excellent and reliable is think about the manufacturing things. In most cases, manufacturing any product, you maybe have 20 or 30% of the actual cost of that in the parts that go into it. Outside of that, you have construction or, you know, uh, production costs, you have marketing costs, you have everything else, and then a profit margin. So for a $40 thing, it's probably got four to six dollars worth of parts in there now that doesn't mean it's not functional and useful but that means you're talking about inexpensive off-the-shelf parts that are going to have a failure rate that is not the same as someone building a 500 or a thousand dollar microphone who are going to be doing all the make sure that everything we put into this device upholds our reputation so when you get down into that kind of 40 dollar microphone things maybe you get lucky and maybe it's just fine and it does a job for you and if so you've won the lottery here but it's also equally possible to run into all sorts of problems that just waste your time after that because there's just no margin in there to really make a really good quality overall product that's my philosophy your mileage may vary and then just pulling in from the comments, Mickey says, Blue used to make the Blue Bottle microphone. Excellent vocal mic. So, yeah, this is, uh, we'll see what else they roll out and if they involve on their product line. Next question. Next one comes to us from Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut. And Eric says, when you produce corporate webcast events, what live streaming service do you use? Do you typically use a customer-provided service account, or do you reuse and uh, resell or use your own service accounts? Jason? Well, that depends very heavily on, on the contract itself. Um, I've used in the past, I've used Restream to, to actually do the lifting. But as far as the account itself is concerned, unless I really, like, unless I have straight in access to the client's YouTube, and sometimes even if I do, um, I won't use it. I, I will use it kind of as a secondary and um, and that's just because anytime I've got more than one set of fingers in a pie, it can get tricky. Alex? Yeah, it really depends on scale. So uh, a lot of times clients are going to have their own their own um, platforms that they want to stream to. So they, they have their own, they're using YouTube they're, or they're using, Cal, you know, they're, they might be using their own um, higher end version of those kinds of things, their own Vimeo accounts. Um, so a lot of times we try to use theirs if they already have something they want to use. Uh, but we also provide Akamai services and so on and so forth. So we're, you know, own I know as a reseller for Akamai. <laughs> so, so if they want to, um, you know, if they want to stream it um, and really have an, their own custom player and custom setup, you know, we can do that as well. But usually when we're when we're providing that, we're not really providing our YouTube channel or even our Vimeo channel. We're providing industrial grade uh, video streaming services, and so it just depends on what they're doing. But if they're doing it on their own, typically we'd recommend 
if they if they have any plan to go to YouTube or other things in the future is to go ahead and start doing it then. And for our producers, keep those questions coming. And remember that this show is driven by you. So as you submit your questions, also look at some of the questions there and vote up and the ones that you think could be used maybe at a later time. Next question. Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas, says it took about two days, but personal voice finally kicked in and I got it to read several long articles in my voice. My wife and friends were blown away at how much it sounded like me. So what's next? Can it be extended via an Apple API? And if so, what apps? Courtney? Well, what's next, Paul? The obvious solution is you change the wake word on Siri to be, hey, Paul. So that uh, anytime they say, your wife says, hey, Paul, can you go out and mow the yard? Siri will, re- will respond and say, in your voice, and say, no, I, I don't think I could do that. Yeah. Bill? So there's a lot of discussion of this. And I am noticing now, since I, I'm dabbling a little bit in the audiobook thing, that there are specific contractual pieces that are showing up in a lot of voiceover contracts that specifically preclude AI being used in any form to submit work that you want to make money off of. This is going to be this ongoing um, jiggling as to how these things fit into our world. They are obviously coming. They are obviously going to have a lot of tasks that they can do beautifully. But in terms of the confusion that will happen, and that was a good example. I mean, how long is it going to take the kids to figure out that uh, I can program mom's voice into this and call the school and say, I have a dentist appointment or whatever the thing is, it's going to be hard to tell who's real and who's synthesized in the coming thing. And we're going to have to learn to negotiate through that. Mitchell? Yeah, as far as what's next, I think uh, an app that can certify that this is the actual voice of the person, even even if it's he's using his animated voice or fake voice on his phone instead of his voice, I think there needs to be some kind of like a little dot or something, maybe that orange dot that can move that from our monitor to uh, your iPhone so that you know that this is the actual Paul that's calling. Otherwise, um, he may be selling uh, car warranties and other things. Alex? On the brighter side, um, you, you know, I think that the ability to send people text stuff or imagine being able right now, if you're driving and you get a text, it comes in as... Uh, you know, the Siri kind of someone's going to read it out to you or whatever voice you choose. Uh, Imagine being able to load that so that someone could, you know, send you a text, text text, not record something, but send it to you, but have it played out in their voice. Um, You know, and so um, I think that you I think you'll see that in the next couple of years of text playing out in a simulated voice. I think for other people's voices, it'll most likely be delivered via cloud so that you're not you're not storing their voices on your device. So it'll play out when you hit it, but it'll, it won't be handing you over, um, you know, their sound. And you can choose whether you want to send them via text or via your simulated voice. But I think that's where Apple may be going with that, um, you know, to make that work. Uh, other positive things um, that are there are being able to correct things. We have things where there's one word wrong and we're playing with the script to do this and 11 labs and a couple other ones um, where we can, hey, I just need to fix one word or two words and a voiceover or something like that. Let me just, let me, or, or a radio show uh, where someone says something that are, they're inaccurate. I don't want to go back and record it. I just want to paper it over. Um, and I think that those kinds of things, um, you know, might be possible there. Uh, the bottom line is, is that especially, this has been the case for a long time, but it's just becoming more, more pointed. You should not trust any single point of truth. Like, you know, no single point. 
You have to have two, three, four uh, collaborating, corroborating uh, pieces of evidence before you should start believing what you what what you're, what's in front of you. Because, um, and that has been the case for a long time. But people think that, well, you know, just because this person said it, it must be true, or just because this is, um, you know. But but we need to like start really thinking hard about what we're looking at all the time, and we should have a long time ago. But now we really have to. Agreed, Mitchell. I'm sorry, Chris. The one exception to that, Alex, of course, is anything you read off the internet because all that stuff is vetted and we know that's Or, or anything true. that I say or you say. I think that people should just take that as uh, bona fide. Uh, Bill? Yeah. <laughs> how, how close are we to, though, I do recommend the Widget 5000. I don't recommend the Widget 5000. And anybody on the planet can make that change instantly by search and replace. That will be a mess for endorsement for curation it's going to be hard it's just it's just gonna you're just gonna need to be able to corroborate it like you're not gonna be able to trust anything that's out there so So alex are you having any success by change wallpapering over a couple of words with the script not yet so no but it doesn't quite as i said we're working on it (laughs) so so we're working on it so What's the, what is it that you, you find? Because we've tried it with like the overdub to try to like yeah. smidge it. It's just not smooth enough. Is that? It's just, just not smooth wanna, enough. It just, yeah. it just sounds like a little glump. Like it, it doesn't, it doesn't have, you know, you're in the middle of a sentence or the start of a sentence or whatever. And it doesn't sound like it, the intonation isn't correct. So it, it's pretty, it feels pretty obvious. The, the tonal nature of the audio is actually pretty good. I've been testing it on my own. And with mine, it, I haven't, we haven't tested, I've been mostly testing it on my own. When I say we're testing it, I'm testing it. Um, and, uh, but um, I find that in the middle of a sentence, it just replaces it and it just sounds like a little chunk out. And and so it kind of says the word and maybe someone would just think that there was some problem with their download, but it's not like, oh, I can just put words into someone's mouth. Right. Have, yeah. you, have you tried doing like the whole the whole phrase? Uh, so, I haven't so tried that. Yeah. I, I would try that. Also, I think that there's an enormous amount of money to be made. And I put this out to everybody. World, please invent this. You could start by doing it in Final Cut 10. Uh, a plugin where you could select a series of words at the end of a soundbite and say, make end of sentence, and it would change the intonation. Yeah. That you could charge a lot of money for that, and I promise you people would buy it. And you do it to, and for some people, you would do it to every sentence that they did because they all end because they're up talkers. They're up. I have a great idea, <laughs> yeah. and this is how we're going to do it. Yeah, exactly. And we will finish our sentence. You just correct up up talking. Just right. put a Fenwick's microphone there. Yeah, exactly. Mitchell. Yeah, to Alex's point, uh, we've been listening to it for a long time. Think about all those infomercials where they say, "Get all three pans for thirty nine twenty five at this store only." I mean, they do it all the time. So uh, the uh, the fake voice, uh, slightly intonation, doesn't they, seem to matter. People just still because listen. just because they do it doesn't mean it doesn't matter. So it is. We want to, you know. <laughs> so so the thing is, is that uh, little bead counters, you know, that are like in their little Excel sheets, have found a way to to um, save money. But it doesn't mean that it doesn't degrade the experience or not feel real or have people think that you're cheap. 
You know, so, so, so the thing is, is that all those little changes matter. They all, all of that non-seamlessness that you hear going on, like you, you got to understand when you're listening to, they're choosing or not choosing to spend the money on, like when you're, when you do a call in, quality of that phone call, the, 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 the tonal rate, the changes in, in the noise is because they paid for it or they didn't pay for it. You know, they did, you know, and so it's just when you hear those tonal changes, it's somebody being cheap because it doesn't have to be that way. Like someone, someone carved off a corner because they decided that the numbers were more important than people. So just always remember that when you see it change. Bill? Chris, I'm just the intonation of this is going to be weird because you could take somebody's, yeah, I support this product as long as you have great fire suppression in place in your office to I support this product. (laughs) <laughs> that's that's a pretty big shift in meaning and if you can if you enable that with a click is anything trustworthy anymore no nothing is trustworthy but what i'm telling you and you know this cuz i know you do the same thing i am constant uh, my biggest complaint editing corporate video is people who think that editing video is like editing a word document they're literally picking up in the middle of sentences and just striking out stuff and saying i don't want them to say that but, yeah, but Frank and Buddy, we've and, been doing and that. And he for a telegraphs while. that he did say it right up until the point that you want to cut away from him. You know, yeah. the, the intonation is wrong. But if you could have, you know, the Fenwick intonator, and like you could just select a few words and select different options of intonation, and maybe it even has to slow down the video just a touch as it pitch shifts it down. I'm telling you, that's the plugin I want. Courtney? Um, this is this technology is one of the reasons you're not going to see any new television shows till the middle of next year because the actors are striking over the use of AI to replace their images and voices uh, because a lot of actors would have things built into their contracts that they come in and do it. You know, they have two or three days of ADR scheduled, you know, in their contract that they would come in and have to do dialogue replacement to, you know, replace some words that were mangled during production. Uh, or to do airline versions. That used to be a big thing. Do the clean version for the airlines. They'd have to clean up all the language so it's family friendly. And they would replace all the curse words with you know family friendly curse words. Uh, and uh, that used to be that. And you could always tell when that was done. The lip movement didn't quite fit. But that could all be done by AI now. Uh, whether it could be done well or not is debatable. And I think the technology will improve to the point that it can just analyze the surrounding sentence and automatically generate the fill-in word with the same intonation. Uh, it shouldn't be too hard, but it's one of the things they're striking over. So let's see how the strike goes. And Alex. And to keep on underlining, you just can't really believe anything that you look at. I mean, there's so many ways that we manipulate the viewer uh, with what we do. And so just for instance, I have 50 people at a, at a protest if I take the camera and I lift it up three feet and point down, the impression that I, I will, I'm not lying, but the impression is that there'll be, there's thousands of people there and there's 50 or 10, you know, um, you know, so news uses this all the time to make something feel bigger is that they fill the camera frame with the handful of people that are there um, that are not representative of anything that's going on there. And they pull that out and that's, it's not lying, but it's not the truth. You know, and so and so the thing is, and that has happened since we had cameras, you know, so so we just have to as someone who's who has worked on the teams that are 
tasked with manipulating that process, I can tell you that it is a, it's not by accident. It is a total conversation that we have about the impression that we want to leave the viewer and exactly how we frame it. So, so, and, and that's, it's not uncommon. So just, just, you know, we shouldn't believe anything that's, that's out there. So. Since we're pulling back the curtain a little bit here, the same thing social wise, social, when you look at people's accounts, they're showing their, oh, I forgot who it was. Um, It was like an NBA player who they showed like they were going on to this, this helicopter, but you saw that it was locked and they weren't going in like just that, that we see that consistently at events. Okay. We've got to make sure we take it from this angle because this whole side is empty and you only want to get this part of it so that it. Because these this content is going to be used in marketing material, you know, later on. It's not just that moment. So you're thinking um, longer wise and, and ahead. So as Alex said, on this note, oh, Alex is coming back. <laughs> well, the, the funny thing is, is that we were talking about the actors. Some of the actors that we've worked with have been actually planning for this for the last decade. They've been getting scans of themselves. So we've worked with actors that get, you know, they get these really high resolution photogrammetry scans. Um, yeah, Chris does it a lot. He does it like once a week. I don't know why it's once a week, but he feels like he's really in a, in a changing moment. He's aging but, fast. It yeah, exactly. So, um, but these actors, a lot of times when they're younger, they'll do those because they want to be able to license their likeness because they have these high-res scans of themselves at a younger age. So their conversation is, I'm getting these scans in my 20s. When I'm in my um, uh, 50s and 60s, when we want to do a flashback, I'll be like, oh, I have all this data, you know, of, of, of what I looked like and sounded like and everything else, which I can then license back to the film, you know, and and that's not the same as the producer's just taking it because they don't have that data. <laughs> the, the actor has that data and they own that data. And so, so it's, an interesting, um, it's an interesting puzzle. But a lot of them have been thinking about this for, for quite some time. Next question. Eric Hertz in Hartford, Connecticut is up next. Do you use Dante and NDI on the same network? Do you ever use either on a company's corporate network or do you build your own private network for production with Dante and or NDI? Go ahead, Jason. Uh, well, full disclosure, I've never used NDI in production. It scares me. Um, for better or for worse, it does. As far as Dante is concerned, uh, it's typically, at least the primary Dante network, is on its own subnet, but is it is not actually, um, at least the backup, is, is also its own entirely different configuration. And doing it any other way, I think, gets really problematic. Alex? Yeah, we definitely put Dante at least on its own subnet uh, or its own VLAN. Um, so it's, it, it'll either have its own VLAN, the uh, NDI, it's hard to keep it on its own network because <laughs> it really wants to leak out. Um, but but NDI is generally on its own network. We will never put Dante. And I mean, I would never put Dante or NDI on a corporate network. Um, there's so much going on there that the chances of, of having a, um, uh, a breakup free solution is very low. Next question. Douglas Carmichael up next with how did TV broadcasters with a lot of live content comply with FCC audio description requirements? Do they set up a dedicated describers booth or contract remote describers per show? Courtney? Well, I'm not sure, but I would think that they a remote describer would be possible since latency probably isn't going to mean a lot since uh, they can't describe it till after they see it and... Uh, so there's going to be a degree of latency anyway uh, on a live show. 
And uh, the person might be uh, visually impaired anyway, so they may not be able to detect the latency very easily. So that should not be a problem. And the, uh, there may be a limit on the requirements as for the, the size of the broadcaster. If it's a small local station that does live news or something, there's not a lot happening in a live news show. Uh, maybe they have to describe the clips that they're cutting to, but uh, it's not like a, uh, a dramatic show. There aren't too many live dramatic shows. I would say live sports would be the main reason you would might need a uh, an audio description channel to be helpful in a live broadcast that may be a smaller market live broadcast. But the the, the big boys can uh, afford to hire the live broadcast person and have them in the booth at the live event. Alex? Yeah, we've almost always seen audio description done on site. I, I've not. I mean, I know that it can be done off site and it happened definitely during COVID, but it, we, I've never seen it done anywhere other than on site. Captions are done off site all the time. So, uh, you know, captions, I don't, we only on the most secure events, big launch events or something, will we see the captioners on site. Generally, they're, they're the entire subsystem of the way AI media slash EEG works is designed to let captioners um, sit in their house <laughs> and caption away from uh, from their living room. I actually asked some cap. We were working with some captioners that were on site. And I was like, I always just imagine that you're, you know, kind of in, uh, you know, t-shirt and sweats, uh, sitting in your in your dining room, you know, captioning these shows. Is that how close is that? And they're like, hundred percent accurate. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so, so just they're just that, that they just they just tune in um, and and start and start cutting away. So it's it, um, it's a very unique skill uh, captioning. So so they, they they can do it pretty much wherever they want. And to our producers, we have room for a few more of your questions before we transition to the top of the hour when we'll be talking about time management and all the tools, resources and strategies around that. And also remember, your voting matters. Next question. Next one comes to us from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Are you going to watch the new Isaac Asimov adaptation of Foundation on Apple TV? How does this story written decades ago hold up in our modern age? John? I read all five books of the Foundation, which to me are the best. It's the best sci-fi ever written a series, series of books. And I was super disappointed in this production. Mitchell? I think it was seven books, uh, John, but uh, I know it was a lot of books and they were very heavy, um, very, very deep, very, very widespread, uh, lots of time lapse, lots of robots, lots of everything. And it's very, very hard to follow that when you do a screen adaptation. Um, I did watch the first season and I had a hard time staying with the subtleties of uh, what was going on there. And I just watched yesterday uh, the first episode of this season and they're a little bit different, but still, it's very hard to stay with it. So I predict that if you're looking for a swashbuckling space epic, it's not that at all. It's uh, it's very, very full of uh, political uh, intrigue and subtleties that require a lot of attention to watch it and follow what's going on. Bill? Yeah, it's been a challenge. You know, people have been talking about doing this for decades, and every screenwriter I think that's ever approached it runs into this main problem, which is in most works, particularly serialized things, you get to know, you're introduced to and get to know the characters in the beginning, and then you follow them through the arc of the story. Foundation is unique in that it, 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 it bounces around so much through time, worlds, scenes, characters, that every time you sit down to watch any part of a new one, you may be in an entirely disconnected scene 
from everything you've seen before. So you don't build those relationships, that understanding. And it has to be redone every single episode to ground you in who the characters are and what they're trying to tell you. So it's always been difficult. I think they're doing as good a job as you can do. But I think this is something where the book form, which gives you much more ability to introduce, define, and bring a character through an arc in a subsection of a book rather than a one-hour television show. It's just very hard to do this. I give them high points for doing the best they can, but this is very difficult, a very difficult adaptation in my mind. And Alex? I'm, I'm curious from John, uh, as someone who read the books, I didn't read the books, um, what's missing for you in the, in the show? Like, Bill why did. are you disappointed? Bill did a very good job of of explaining, articulating what the problem was, jumping from from world to world and, and trying to follow the storyline. And, it, you know, another interesting real problem I had was the, the main character was in Halt and Catch Fire, and I couldn't get that out of my head in that role, which was really problemsome. Yeah, I just found no drive to continue. I got about halfway through the series and got, had no drive to continue watching. Like, I, it was just, a you know, the whole family was just kind of like, hmm. like no, no one was asking, like, let's go find something else. <laughs> so, so it's, uh, and we've had that problem recently with uh, some of the Disney series as well. I mean, it's not, it, I think overall, I don't know whether it's just being saturated by a lot of these things or not, but we've definitely gotten halfway through a variety of these pieces and just stop watching somewhere in the middle. Mitchell? Yeah, I would, I'd like to amend my comment a little bit. If you haven't read the books, I did, um, then you're really lost. You're completely lost watching the way they tried to serialize it in the, uh, in the form of a TV series. And uh, the other thing is if they have a hard time with Dune, they're going to have 10 times uh, more trouble trying to do Foundation. Bill? Yeah, I think one of the reasons Foundation is so widely respected in the scientific uh, sci-fi community is that this was the first time that somebody really managed to do that, decouple character from plot and have such big ideas as you watch these worlds develop and the politics influence them. That was the hook into, into the stories as you read them, not the characters, but almost everything we've seen since that and everything we've seen in terms of movies and television shows is based on characters. So it was a tour de force for Mr. Clark to be able to make this world without character being the center of the drama. Bill, that was uh, Isaac Asimov. Oh, I'm sorry, Asimov. I'm sorry. Apologies. Chris? Yeah, I didn't watch the show at all, but it's been a while since I've heard myself talk. So I had a question for Alex. Alex, do you think the fact that you're cutting off these these, uh, series early is that going to help you get through stuff faster that's squirreled away on streaming services so you'll need new content from Hollywood sooner? I, I don't yeah, I don't think I need any new content from Hollywood for a long time. I, I think that's the problem that they're that they're gonna have with the streamers is that is that I I feel like it would take me two or three years to get caught up. You know, just you know, so they you but know maybe it, it's less than that now if you're if you're cutting them off halfway. But cutting them off old halfway. ones. But then you find old ones. We got into Person of Interest, which, and we watched that for, I don't That's know. That's a great show. 150 episodes or something like that. That's so that was every night show. for like five or six months. And yeah. that, that ended a long time ago. <laughs> so it was a really fun show. And, and then we watched Alias, and that was how many seasons? And, and, and we just, and then Heroes, one and two. And so the thing is, is that you, you get into these, 
Heroes 2, by the way, don't bother. Anyway, but but Heroes 1 was great. Um, the uh, but what, all I'm saying is, is that it, 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 there are so many great series that if you go back thir- 20 or 30 years, I just think that it's a real challenge because I don't feel like they need to put, I felt like I was excited about every new thing, but now every new thing comes out and I'm, I don't find it that good. And Friends I was keep good. on digging into the old stuff. What? I don't, I don't think you Friends. could binge watch uh, Foundation. I think it would make your head explode. Oh, I think it would be much easier, to be honest. I think that's part of the problem is when it came out one week at a part. I, I find it so much e- like I watched Mission Impossible. I watched Mission Impossible 7 yesterday um, at, at an IMAX. Um, and uh, but I watched all six one day. You know, my wife and I watched them day after day after day after day after day to make sure that we were all caught up. And seven made so much more sense because we watched all six in the last week, you know, and um, and it was. And so I think that wa- being able to watch I I I actually don't even consider the series anymore until all the episodes are there. Like, I just, I won't even start watching it until then because it's just too much trouble to, like, this whole, like, one a week. I'm like, I'll just wait until it's all there and then I'll watch them all one one day at a time. Not in, in binging, but just one, just one at a time. We go through it, so. Next question. Douglas Carmichael's up next, and he asked one for me. Bill, you mentioned audiobook contracts are now specifically banning the use of AI. Is this just trying to protect talent's jobs or trying to preserve the quality of the experience for the listener? Go ahead, Bill. Uh, probably both. Uh, I, I, it's interesting. The contracts are very structured here, and I noticed this probably five months ago, that there was very specific language in the contract that says the narrator cannot use artificial voices to accomplish this contract. So it's very specific um, whether that will change, whether it's temporary, whether that'll last for a long time, but it is there. So for all the narrators out there who work in the audiobook field, it is specifically contractually uh, precluded. And I can see that because you're you're asking, you've got a contract, they're going to pay you a certain amount of money, you're going to turn in this book. If you just run it through chat, or not chat, but if you run it through some audio system and just put that out and say, here, I've fulfilled my contract, pay me my money, they wanted that not to happen, I think. Right. Courtney? Yeah, Bill's right. They're just protecting their investment. They're paying you to generate the stuff and they don't want to get something that you knocked off with 11 Labs clone of your voice. Uh, the the scarier thing is that the other way around is the, the voice talent wants to prevent the uh, audiobook manuf- you know, seller from taking your previously contracted voice, sampling it, and releasing new audiobooks without paying you for it. That's what you should be worried about. Also, the uh, uh, and the audiobook uh, industry in general, remember there was a big flap about the uh, uh, text-to-speech reader in the Kindle uh, uh, Kindle tablet apps that would you could just take a PDF and have it read it aloud for accessibility versions and, and for uh, to meet the accessibility requirements. A lot of them had to include a text-to-speech uh, generator and that particular synthesizer text to speech is getting better and better and if you can train it with a you know known voice um, that's going to maybe eliminate the whole audiobook uh, recording industry if it gets good enough you know? so they're worried about that as well and chris i think this is a a, a challenge to the people that make these uh, pieces of software that take text and synthesize my voice, whatever. Cause now they're like, well, all we got to do is 
fool one of the audiobook companies because how are they going to know? How are they going to? How are they going to know if it's done with AI or Bill sitting in his booth reading on a microphone? And if they don't know, then the AI wins. And Bill? I just have to, a little uh, anecdote. My wife came in to me the other day and said, oh, I've been listening to something on TV. This is undoubtedly AI. And I went in and no, it was one of the reporters from uh, the Ukraine who obviously spoke Ukrainian as their first language, who, but who was very fluid in English, reading it in English. She took that as being the sound of AI because it was a little stilted. And I was saying, actually, the AI stuff I've heard is more fluid than that. So maybe lack of fluidity might be a human characteristic that they're going to have to program into these things eventually. It's just so goofy out there. Next question. Next question comes to us from Chris Fenwick in Emeryville, California. Liberty, I have to ask because I've been totally fixated on this detail. Do you have several ladders, one for each outfit you wear? Outfit you wear? It's a great look. I'm Thank not you. Kidding, I see usually the, the thumbs up from, from John there. So this is the one and only ladder that whenever I'm in studio and I'm on office hours that it just happened to be that today this is what I wore. And I didn't, have, I didn't have that. Typically, you know that I've got the, the lights on the other other side with the color and just time wise it didn't work so I was like I cannot have just a plain wall oh the ladder everyone loves the ladder so So you just you just slid the ladder in so the wall wasn't totally plain so it was not just happened to match color that is I'm gonna recommend you get some more ladders because (laughs) the color match is cool I never Thank considered you. ladder as fashion accessory, but now I'm going to have to rethink this whole thing. This whole thing. Next question. I've been, I've been looking at it all day. Anyway, it looks good. <laughs> Thank Bo you, Bo Cordell is up next from Charleston, South Carolina, furthering the discussion on digital authenticity. How might blockchain tech be used to fingerprint and verify that a video or audio is what the original creator intended? Alex? It's possible, and blockchain could could help with that. That's where NFT and, and a lot of those things, and, and it becomes much more doable when we have proof of work as opposed to proof of, of uh, uh, I'm sorry, proof of stake as opposed to proof of work. Um, but the uh, but what I will say is that the problem is that the original creator may intend to mislead us. <laughs> so so you can put you can put that little that little uh, that little piece on it, but it doesn't mean that it's the truth. It just means that they did that on purpose. John. This is actually a piece of legislation that's being considered, this exact thing right now. Next question. Raman Kutshaw in Atlanta, Georgia says, I've used X32 programs like X32 Edit, and they seem very old school. Is there a better program for iOS and or Mac that are more logical and or current? Jason? I've spent entirely too many too too many hours and, and too much money trying to, to answer this question. There are a fair number. Uh, recently, I've been playing around with MixStation. They updated it as of six days ago. The graphics look good. The connectivity seems to be solid. I really like the way that they explain and, and show EQs. The routing is pretty decent, and it works for more than just the X32. So that's one to take a look at. And Alex? Which is funny because the X32 edit was, I think, purchased because it was uh, the most modern version <laughs> of what you could do with the X32 compared to what uh, Behringer had. So, so yeah, so I think that there is a, um, uh, the X32 controls, I will say the software controls are some of the better software controls out there. There's definitely a lot of room for this to be improved in the market. 
Next question. Chris Widener in Lafayette, Indiana. Up next, Alex, you have uh, have you introduced your kids to The Prisoner or Red Dwarf? Alex. Not yet. <laughs> but but Red Dwarf is definitely on the list of things to my uh my my wife doesn't appreciate uh English humor as much as I do. So so I think that um that usually we watch everything as a group and that she she kind of it's not not really her uh, cup of tea, so to speak. Go ahead, Bill. Well, is, I'm interested, Alex, is there any kind of uh, pushback if you go back to something so long ago, it's in four by three, like the original prisoner and stuff like that? Or do they accept that as just like a historical artifact? They don't really care. Like I, I found that they can now most of the stuff I care. So I care about it. And I, I, um, I, it bothers me, but there's a lot of things that bother me. I asked my wife, I was like, do you see the, the pattern of the holes in the projection screen? Does that bother you at all on the, you know, when I go to a movie and she's like, I have no idea what you're talking about. I'm like, well, you will now. <laughs> so, so anyway, so anyway, um, so yeah, that's, so I, I get bothered by a lot of things, but my kids don't seem to, to care. Next question. Alan Scott in uh, Fredericton, New Brunswick, Canada. Lately, I've been bringing the entire run. I've been binging the entire run of MASH. I noticed that the opening theme song had has had many variations over the seasons. Why would they have changed it? Alex? It's actually pretty common. I mean, it's, it's common. Usually what happens is, is the producer uh, oftentimes after a season, they they threw something together and then after the season gets through they're like you know i really didn't like that one part or i really wish this was a little bit better we now have more budget there's a whole bunch of reasons that they might they might want to do it and it's sometimes you know every new season is an opportunity to update the the, the music the open uh, you'll see you'll see oftentimes see evolution in in that area chris you know there's a, <clears throat> excuse me there's a story about that song and i can't i can't recall it i tried to google it i bet you courtney knows it's something about Somebody tried to write the worst song possible, and uh, Altman loved it and ended up using it. Um, and it was originally written for the uh, for the movie about one of the characters committing suicide. The song's called "Suicide Is Painless." But there's there's some. I want to say it was like somebody's kid wrote it, and they and the kid ended up making more money off of it than the dad did, or something. It, it, there's a weird anecdote. I wish I knew it. Sorry. Mitchell? It was Altman's son who wrote the words to that song. And I think that what happened is it became successful. Uh, the subject matter of the song became sensitive to the uh, uh, to the censorship, and that's the problem. And, and it, by the way, for the record, um, I love the Star Trek version uh, where they sing. Courtney? Yeah, it's been said. Because they because of the song Suicide is Painless promotes suicide, they thought they got a lot of pushback, I think, after the first season or two. But it was, you know, uh, accurate to the original film, which is why they had it for the TV show to begin with. But I think they uh, buckled to the censors. And for many series, too, it's also marketing and part of the community. Like when the series begins, it's like, what is it going to look like, sound like this time as this time around? So that's also uh, a tactic, too. Next question. Next question comes from Paul Wallace in Austin, Texas. Twitch told their streamer community that they couldn't have logos take up more than 3% of their screen. They did this within 24 hours. Are things like this why YouTube doesn't have to fight Twitch, which fumbles the ball like this? Alex? Uh, everybody fumbles the ball. 
<laughs> like so, so every, you know, you're trying to figure something out. There's some reason that you have that there. Uh, probably Twitch wants to make sure that it's making money and you're not making money. You know, they don't want the, the Twitch, what, what a lot of Twi- all streamers want to make money without paying the, the network, but the network or the platform, the platform though is spending money on streaming all that, all those bits. And so they want to be able to generate revenue. And so, so there, there's this pushback and forth is the platform trying to pay for the platform and the, and the, and the streamers trying not to pay the platform. And so the, this tug of war that you see, Twitch has also said that you can't, for instance, stream to Twitch if you're streaming to other plat the same content to other platforms. This is kind of a backwards thinking that happens. You know, everybody does it for at least a little while. <laughs> like, you know that, and then everyone just ignores them, and then they just give up on you know enforcing it. Usually, I mean, they'll enforce it for a while, and what they'll do is they'll they'll hit somebody that's large enough to complain, and then uh, that person will get on all a bunch of whole things and rip them rip them um, apart, and then they'll stop enforcing it but they'll leave the rule in place and that's how you end up with like stupid things like instagrams like you can only stream from a you know there's no rtmp to instagram and then people figure out a way around it and then the problem is too many stars and other people are using it they can't really enforce it anymore so uh, it's probably all these rules that twitch is doing they're just this is their this is their time their adolescence <laughs> where do they get to learn all the things that aren't going to work Next question. Kenny Hampton in Greenville, Illinois. From Paul's container question of building a mobile studio, what do you think of building a basic production studio from a nice used towable travel trailer? AC, heat, shore power, and privy installed seems like a cost-effective solution versus a bare box trailer build. Go ahead, Bill. A lot of people have tried adapting those. Uh, To me, the issue is if I have a built-out trailer for someone to live in and you're going to shoehorn a production facility in there, you're going to be removing in order to put in what you need. Now, I know that where I'm sitting right now, this transported to a travel trailer of some sort would take up maybe 30% of the space that's usable in there. So already I'm kind of fighting it, which is why a lot of people who want to build a specific uh, bespoke studio kind of thing. Just start with the bare bones and make it all up as they go along. Alex? Yeah, the ones you're looking for are toy haulers. So um, we we rent these. There's actually production companies that provide them. And so the toy hauler, a toy hauler is, is something that's designed to actually have something go in the back. When we say toys, we usually mean ATVs or cars or other things. And you get a relatively large one and it'll have exactly what you're talking about. It has uh, a bathroom. It has a little kitchen. It has places to hang out and sit and talk. But it's got a big open area in the back that was designed to throw a car into the back of it. And uh, we have built many productions in the back of those uh, in the back of that area. And it works great. Um, we also do production trailers, which we take toy haulers, which are the entire production unit. It was designed to carry cars, and we um, instead, you know, fill it with gear. Um, so, so those are we definitely use those and fill the whole thing with gear and tow it with a truck. But the um, but the the RVs are are really useful. Next question. Gordon Lake in Los Angeles, California. In pre-show, Jason mentioned an app that handles two-step verification. Can you talk about it, Jason? Yeah, sure. Uh, OTP space auth is um, my solution to the fact <clears throat> that I am tired of using Microsoft Authentication for Microsoft Authenticator and Google Authenticator for Google Authentication and Facebook and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. It just kind of goes on and on and on. It works on the watch. It works on iOS. It works on Mac OS. It syncs nicely over iCloud. And I'm going to get myself out of the way here. Yeah, that'll work. No, not best, but there we go. Um, 
if you want, grab that QR code because every single one of these looks exactly the same if you're looking at it in the App Store. Uh, it's maybe two bucks total. All right. Well, thank you so much, producers, for all of your questions so far in our, our first hour as we make this transition into talking our discussion around time management and how we can not only managing our, our, our day, our day to day and our schedules and our projects, but what are some of the ways that you're currently doing that? So feel free, please, to go ahead and submit your questions and panel, getting together and getting your hands hands up and so that you can contribute to this conversation. Um, time management, like Alex, I see you're already, I just want to say that like I have learned a lot from you, even scheduling wise, because my email, my inbox is something that oftentimes just, you know, get under me. But one of the, the books that I've read this year that has really helped in that is like the 12 week year. And that just based on how you start your week, how you start your day and, and really brain dumping around your major goals and prioritizing them, how that can really impact getting to that, getting to that next level and just getting things done, get stuff done. Alex? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to this to unpack. There's but, so much. <laughs> so much to unpack. There's a couple of things, though, that, that, that resonate with me a lot when I think about time management. Um, one of them is there's a, I, I don't know, it's somewhere on the internet. There, and I really, it really got me thinking pretty hard when I saw it. The, he talks about putting, if you put a bunch of little pebbles into a jar, and then you start trying to put medium-sized pebbles and then big pebble and big rocks into the jar, you can't fit a lot of big rocks in there because you already filled it with all the little pebbles, but there's still a lot of air left around that jar. If you put the big rocks in first and then you put medium rocks and then the pebbles in, you can fit a lot more of in, into, that, into that time space, let's say, in that area. And the reason that that's important is not everything is important. If everything's important, nothing's important. And so you have to decide what are the things that have to get done today? What are the things that have to get done in my life? What are the things that have to get done? What are the priorities? And you schedule those first, <laughs> you know, and, and usually those are the bigger, more complicated things, the things, but schedule those first. And then you start scheduling the other things that are in, in there around it. Um, but you, but when you, so in, in this case, the way I, the way I do that is you'll find that there's a certain time that's very hard to get me to schedule. And that's between about 1.30 and about 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Um, I do everything I can to keep that time free. Now, I have clients that sometimes put stuff in there, and I can't always avoid that. But I will not willingly put anything into 1.30 to 4. And usually in my calendar, there's a spacer that says, this is what I'm working on. I'm working on a business plan. I'm working on something for a client. I'm working on, and it's a thought... I'm, I'm protecting two and a half hours a day. And I try to, to be honest, I try to protect noon to four, you know, is the time that I try. Now I have meetings typically from four to six and that's why I, uh, or four to seven. So I, so I have meetings in the late afternoon and I have meetings in the morning. In the middle of the day, I really try to keep it open so that I can think. Um, one of the big things that, that people don't take into account is the, the ability to keep your mind uh, plastic, you know, and be able to actually think about things. And I get paid to think. Uh, I don't get paid to do things. I get paid to think about things. And so I have to, I have to constantly protect my ability to think, you know. And so 
Um, there's a, there's a bunch of things that I do there, but one of the, one of the things is holding big spaces open in my day so that I have time to germinate and think about things and, you know, really have time to be creative. Another thing is, is that I protect my time to sleep. <laughs> so I, I, I get up really early, but I also don't stay up very late, you know, so I, I try to, I give myself a solid uh, eight hours. I usually don't sleep eight hours. I don't think I, I, I'm not really capable of sleeping eight hours, but I leave that, that, that amount of space opened, um, that I, that I could, if I, if I needed to, um, the, uh, the other thing is, is that my calendar is the, the, I mean, if anyone who interacts with me, uh, my calendar is everything. If you're not in my calendar, if you don't send me a calendar event, you should probably assume that I'm not going to show up. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like I'm not going to be there and I won't feel bad because I won't even remember that it happened. Like, I won't know that, that we had a meeting, uh, if it's not in my calendar. So, um, and I, and I will admit generally I have it like whoever's sending out the zoom account, the zoom event owes me a calendar event, <laughs> you know, and so, you know, like, you know, and whoever's creating the Zoom uh, owes, owes, owes the person who they're, if they're, if they're offering that. But um, I'm very, very driven by my, uh, by my calendar and I fill my calendar up. So I put everything I'm going to do, not just meetings, but everything I want to do, I put in my calendar because it starts to represent it. For me, it represents what's actually, whether I'm actually available because it's easy to say, oh, I got a bunch of open spaces, but if I fill all those open spaces with meetings, I won't get anything done. You know, nothing comes out the other end. And so, so I, a lot of what I do is, is fill. So usually my day um, by the middle of Monday will look complete. The whole week is full. Um, you know, that it's all, it's all full of things that need to get done. And I know that if I'm having a meeting, I need to take something away from the time that I'm doing. So I'm consciously going, well, I was going to work on that, but now I'm putting a meeting in there. And there's a thought process that there's a loss there, not just like, oh, I got free space that I can put anything I want to into it. Um, I'm pretty, I'm pretty, uh, edgy about people who, who create meetings that are longer than half an hour, 25 minutes, <laughs> 25 minutes to me is, a, is the right number for a meeting. Um, if it's more than 25 minutes, this better be good. You know, like, you know, and we do have longer meetings. We had some over the weekend, but generally I try to keep meetings with folks to 25 minutes. I feel like a lot, of, not all the time, but most of the time it's just bad management. Now, when you're doing things where you have a whole bunch of people, 30, 40 people, or 20, like we had these volunteer meetings over the weekend, that's something that takes time to kind of discuss and work through things. But on a general meeting, it should be 25 minutes. Um, the other, finally, the last things are, I, I try to make as few decisions in my personal life as possible on a day-to-day -day basis. It's not that I don't make them, but I try to minimize the number of, of decisions. And I'm, my wife will tell you that I'm constantly saying, I can't process that right now. Like, I'll just say, I can't, you know, that's not something I can, I can, uh, I can talk about because I can't allow it as someone who is a little ADD, I can't allow things into my mind. So, you know, someone says, oh, I just want to talk to you for five minutes. It's not five minutes for me. <laughs> like, like it's not, you know, like, like it's five minutes for you. For me, it's two hours, you know, like, you know, because you're going to talk to me for five minutes and get my mind racing up on something that wasn't in my head and wasn't part of what I was doing today. And now you want me to think about that. Um, and, and so, uh, you know, so I will not meet with people or not talk to people about things very purposefully until I'm ready to think about it, you know, because I don't, because I don't have time working on something else right now. You know, um, I make all my, uh, I make all my lunches and um, I have the same breakfast every morning. I make all my lunches on Sunday. So, um, and I make my salads on Sunday or I buy the stuff for my salads on Sunday to minimize the number of things I have to do during the day. The dinner is variable. Sometimes I don't eat it, Some, but, but I don't like to think during the day about what I'm going to eat. Um, you know, it's just another, it's, it's wasted CPU power. So, um, so anyway, those are some of the things that I do. Um, I also 
wear most of the same clothes. I mean, I wash everything. <laughs> so I'm wearing clean clothes all the time, but, but I don't, I don't vary very much. I've got a couple, uh, you know, working at home, I've got a couple pairs of cargo shorts and, uh, and I've got, um, a couple shirts that I, that I just keep washing every day, but I don't, I don't like, um, uh, making, I don't like making decisions that don't need to be made. You know, like, you know, like if, if they're not going to be intrinsic to moving the, the idea forward, um, you know, I try to keep them to the to the side, you know, and then I try to have all my emergencies. Anything I have to work on in the house is usually on the weekend. Uh, I don't let myself uh, deal with it during the week because otherwise I wouldn't get anything done. So that's funny because I had to come into the studio today and I was like, wait, now I got to figure out what pants to wear <laughs> because I typically have, you know, if I'm at home in studio uh, at home or office or whatnot, I don't necessarily have to think about things. What you're essentially talking about is like decision fatigue because that's taking away from... You're, you can only make so many decisions a day. Right. And people will say that that's not true, but it is. <laughs> like it's 100% true. And you can only make so many decisions in a day. You might get better at it or whatever, but you want to minimize the number of those decisions in the complexity of those decisions. So a lot of times, if you send me an email that requires something other than yes or no, the chance, you know, a lot of times I won't get back to you because I'm like, oh, I'll get to that. And I, that gets set off. I, I, uh, there was, um, my uncle used to work for Ted Turner and no matter where Ted Turner was in the world, someone would walk up with a pile of, of paper is 20, 30 sheets of paper. And all of them had about six lines of something. We're planning to do this, or we're trying to do this or whatever. And all there was a big yes, no. And he would just sit there and at the speed he could read, he would just go yes, no, yes, no, no explanation, no whatever. But that's all you got to do with Ted Turner was ask him yes or no. And I thought that was a great model. <laughs> so, so, so I usually, you know, like I, uh, and, and um, I will think about things and talk to people about them. But it, the, the longer the, I really feel like people aren't being considerate when they send lots of long emails, you know, like that's, that's something that I'm always surprised that people do that. But I, I, uh, um, I don't really like a lot of build up or I just need people to get to the point most of the time um, of what, what they want. Um, so I think that, and I try to do that when I send emails, if you, if I send someone a long email, it means it was a big deal and you won't see another one of those for a long time, you know, cause I, I feel like it's inconsiderate. If I send a long one, it's probably Siri and I'm talking into my phone and <laughs> sending, sending you that email. Yeah, That's exactly. the only way. Otherwise, it's yes, copy that, etc. cetera. Um, for me, I have, and I mentioned that 12-week yearbook that really, really helped me to look at, okay, so uh, let me, sorry, take a step back. And so the idea is that most people or most organizations, when it comes to planning and the goals that they have set for the year, they kind of like those start off in January whenever their planning session is and then they will coast a little bit and then it's when they get to Q3 and 4 they're like oh we're not on track and then they get all this work done in a, a 90 day period and so essentially the idea is that well you first do your big vision planning get those goals in place but you give yourself 12 weeks which is like 90 days to for each of those goals so it's kind of like you're looking at each each uh, quarter as a year based on that concept. And for me, what that helped me do was just vision planning and putting those things in place. But the time blocking, which is much of what Alex shared of how he plans his day. But for me, you know, the importance of protecting that time at the beginning of the week where I am thinking again, a thousand percent to what Alex says, giving yourself time and capacity to think and to debrief and to strategize. And especially if you are, um, and I'm throwing this out to the panel, you know, that saying is like, we all have the same amount of time. We all have 24 hours. 
we do not all have 24 we have 24 hours but how you use them varies so much so that's whenever i hear that quote it's just like oh i am uh you know i'm a, a, a founder i am a mother i am sometimes a, a a caregiver like there's so many things that are always competing for my time and attention and when it comes to time management not only prioritizing your task and and delegating i'm sure some questions will come in around that and how we do that but then the ability to give yourself <clears throat> excuse me time to think and react there was something it was a, a couple sundays ago um, where Grant was on and he mentioned that when he's working with his team that he now he makes sure like if they're on site that they're not working at they're not pushed like a hundred percent capacity by the time you get to being on site it's like uh, I might misquote the numbers, but it was like that he they should be at 40 percent capacity so that that 60 percent of the time, if something happens or comes up, that they're able to react. And that's the way I look at my time management is, OK, I protect Sundays and that's the time where I'm doing all of these things and mapping it out. You most likely are not going to be able to schedule a meeting with me on the same week because I've already mapped that out. And like Alex said, the time that it it takes to somebody says five minutes, but there's so much planning that I'm doing before I get into the meeting. So by putting that, unless it's is client and there's a there's a fire, those things you know take precedence. But um, and we haven't really mentioned tools yet, but like Calendly, so that takes out the back and forth with hey, what time works for you? What times works for you? No, I have certain Calendlys for certain um, for certain task like okay if it's this is training here's this calendly and it's organized according to my calendar oh if this is hey you just want to ask a quick question here's the calendly for that so really organizing those things i would say also organization is a huge component and a huge part of being able to um, to manage your time um, and we haven't even got into when you're now managing people and what that looks like with so um i remember when i was working at the state and my director at the time she was managing a team of maybe like six and she'd get there super early but then she was still there till like seven and nine and I now get it because she was spending a lot of her time making sure that everyone you know was on task if people needed assistance like when you are the team lead your priority is to make sure that everybody has the tools and the resources that they need to do their job on top of the fact that she had to do her job and that's where she was working you know later to get her task out of the way so for me that means I'm a morning person. I know where my zone of genius is. So I'm up super early, sometimes three, four in the morning. And that's just me getting myself together, my quiet time, my prayer time. And then now, okay, what is the most important thing that needs to happen in the day? Because I try my best to get that handled in the beginning first couple hours because once that day I say when the world wakes up <laughs> when the world wakes up anything and everything could happen and if 
at the if there's this task or goal or proposal that needs to get out, well, I'm going to make sure that I do that when I have the uninterrupted time. And that's another phrase, like the importance of having that time where you're able to think, you're able to um, to strategize and not have interruptions. Because how many of us, like the phone rings, the the notification goes off, the the spouse or or, or child they come in, and then that can kind of derail that focus that you have in, you know, doing those elements. So those are just like some quick thoughts around like how I look at managing time, how I am still, this is something I'm still working on. So I'm looking forward to the rest of this conversation to see um, the ways other other panelists and even, you know, share your comments as well. And I will say this too, Alex, I remember you saying like, you know, 25 minute, like even when I was in this, um, this accelerator program, a lot of the investors that I, I noticed they didn't have, they had, I think it was anywhere between like 15, 20 minute blocks. That was their time. And I was like, there's something to that and not the, the blanketed hour or even half an hour. Like, is that 25 minute? Cause you know, when you say, okay, we're going to wrap, it takes another five minutes to, you know, to wrap the conversation. So, um, there are, are people that I work with that they're stickler weeds. They either give the warning at the like 20 minute mark. Okay. So looking at our time so that, you know, you let the other person know, and, but then at that mark, it's a wrap. And that drives the conversation too. So yeah. when you have a 25 minute a meeting uh, and you know, you have a lot to cover, that means you have an agenda. That means it starts on time. That means you're moving through the conversation quickly. Those are all things that now I will say that there is something to be said for long conversations about things, but not with right. a lot of people. Um, you, I do, I keep in mind how many people are in the meeting and what their average salaries are. And I can very quickly tell you Eh, roughly how much this meeting cost. <laughs> I was in a meeting at the White House with, with 50 people and it went through my head like, this is a really expensive meeting, so keep it quick and make sure that you're going to ask the questions that you have and get everything you need out of this because you're spending a lot of money. You know, and, right. and, and I think that we, you know, we want to make sure that, that we want to uh, always be conscious of how much money we're spending uh, on that, in that time. Yeah. And to your point about the long conversations, well, then I also have dedicated days where I recognize I typically there aren't too many demands. I can have those virtual teas or when people just want to, hey, I want to connect. And I understand like where those kind of conversations could go. And those are relationship building conversations as well and giving time and space for those things. But those being on dedicated days to, again, reduce the f decision fatigue because could you imagine like every week being different that just impacts um, impacts muscle memory, impacts your productivity? Let's go with Bill. Well, I'm going to take a slightly different uh, tack on this. And it's only because I, when I think of time uh, for my whole career, looking back at it, I vary time blocks. And I think about it in terms of like music. There are a lot of areas in my life where I've had to march. I mean, just march through meetings and structure and be there at nine o'clock and that happens at 915 and that happens at nine. It's very much what you're talking about. And without that consistent pulse of every bit of time needs to be measured and taken care of, you don't succeed when you have to march. I mean, that, you know, marching in the pace at which you march when you need to march is an important thing. That's probably why the military relies on it so much for to get that discipline and getting everybody going at the same pace at the same time. There's also other kinds of time, though. 
I feel like when I edit, I move over to waltz time and it is more free flowing and it is more fluid and I'm not concerned so much with hitting deadlines. And that kind of moves me into what I call jazz time, where literally there are players that play behind, there are players that play ahead of the beat, they're looking for something out of the ordinary to use for pacing a piece of effort. And I love being able to be granted the freedom to move into that time. And then there's the tone poem guys who just, uh, men and women, who the composers who throw it away and just say, I'm going to look at time differently. I'm going to take large blocks and do something. Maybe I'll take a whole day and work on the paragraph of a poem because that is important to me to be that precise and work at it that hard. And for me, I want my life to be lived on a variety of time things that I can pull out when it's appropriate, when I'm allowed to do that. And to me, a red flag is when I've been stuck in one for a long period of time. Now, I've needed to be stuck in one during the most productive part of my career when I was at a desk every morning because everybody depended on me being at the desk in the morning. You know, you're on March time for a long time, and that is appropriate, and the world expects that, and my bosses loved it because I was at that seat at 8 o'clock, and I didn't vary that at all. But boy, I found that I was desperate on the weekends to get off of March time and to get into a waltz or jazz or something else so that I could refresh myself and knowing that my life was not going to be one long march to retirement. And then I was tossed out on the street without the ability to do anything but march. So my two cents worth. That was really great, Bill, because you also touched on the fact that for, for many of us that you're managing the business side, but the creative side, giving yourself space to create and design and what goes into um, what goes into that that process. So I think that is very valid. It's how it worked for me through my career. And I think the satisfaction came for me, this is how my brain is wired. You know, maybe if, if, and I'm not, this is not pejorative, but if you're a CPA, maybe you need to march all the time because you just got to get the numbers in on time and get them right in the cells. And, and, and maybe that's completely satisfying for that person. For me, I, I spent more time than I would have hoped before I went self-employed and was able to direct it marching. And I, I always felt a little constrained by that. And I always felt like I had to get away from it. Since I stopped doing that, I've never felt like I had to get away from my schedule because I always built in that amount of time for jazz. And for our producers, continue. I see there's some great conversation happening in the chat. Ike just said, um, find your shuffle. So please submit your, your questions and your comments as we continue this conversation around time management. Alex? Yeah, and and I would just say to underline what Bill Bill said is that you know really having open space is really important if you're being creative. You gotta not have it. And one thing that I will say is as you look at your schedule, I cluster meetings, so um, I have the meetings back to back to back. It may sound like it's hard, but I do that so that I have people say, well, you need safety to do whatever. I don't do that because otherwise I don't have a day left because if I start having every meeting a half an hour apart that, you know, the problem is you're coming out of one meeting and you're a little more lax. You, you end that meeting a little late and then you go get a couple other things. Nothing gets done, you know, in that in that period of time. And so I, I usually will back my meetings up back to back to back. Now, if it's a new meeting with a new client about a new product, I schedule 
a 15 or 30 minute block before that meeting that I'm going to do research, you know, or sometimes an hour. I had a meeting on, on Friday with a client that I hadn't seen before, might be doing a bunch of things with them. I spent two hours looking at their content, <laughs> just, just watching all their content, absorbing. Like first I would just watched it to see how I felt. Then I, then I started breaking down how they use cameras, how they use content, what kind of content do they do. And I really had a structure so that when I'm in that meeting with them, I'm productive in it. But I didn't just say, oh, I'm going to do that. I, I put a block in there to, to make that happen. Jason? Um, I too am paid to talk and paid to think, and I am highly ADD. So the combination of those two has meant that I need to take technology and use it as my metronome, because if I don't, everything's lost. And, um, you, you know, I, I will tap dance the entire day away and I won't even miss it. That's just how I'm wired. So it, ballpark, the way that that has worked out for, for my schedule is that weekends are sacred to my personal life. And, um, you know, waking up early is important, at least most days. And, um, Yes, meetings get clustered towards the beginning and the end of the day. For me, that works very well, too. And that time in the middle is either time that I'm spending directly with clients creating and, and presenting what I'm what I'm thinking of or time that I'm intentionally creating for flow. And flow to me feels like it, it's the, the greatest feeling ever, probably because it's really hard for me to get there. And once I'm there, it feels like I'm underwater and nothing else is really going to going to bother me. Um, and the minute something does, yes, a, a, an entire an entire hour or two are completely completely and totally lost. So yes, underlying everyone on that one, it's really hard to, to switch context. And you even saying that part, like you're paid to talk and think, I was like, that's a t-shirt right there. But even all of us, we're here in many of our, our skill sets and roles, the amount of research we're paid to, to study, to know what's coming, to think through those, um, those systems and processes. So thanks for that, Jason. Courtney? Yeah, my time management skills have kind of been blown out because uh, I started in live radio. And if you ever worked in live radio, you know that the FCC requires logs and you have to log everything. And if I, I worked in uh, at a radio station that was a network affiliate, so we had to hit, you know, CBS News on the hour exactly to the second. And the radio station was owned by the Johnson family, Lyndon and Lady Bird. And uh, because of that, it was under a lot of scrutiny by the FCC. So we had to log every single second of airtime on a written log. We had to log each each uh, commercial when it started, when it ended, to the second. You know, each section, each music piece of music we played, we could choose the music. But we had to log when it started, when it stopped, when it you know, and all the seconds and stuff had added had to add up. So this became a huge nightmare for me. Uh, we had printed logs to, uh, you know, pre-printed logs that took care of the, the main stuff that we knew had to hit certain time marks on there were already on there, but maintaining that time schedule and fitting into that time slot was, was always a lot of work. Then I moved from uh, radio into film, which is just the opposite. Uh, you couldn't schedule anything because on a film set in production, you don't know how long your day is going to be. It depends on how it goes. You know, how many retakes do we do? Well, we got to shoot out this location. So we're going to go to a 14 hour day instead of, you know, an eight hour day or a 12 hour day. So you never know. You can never plan anything if you're working on a film shoot because uh, you don't know what your schedule is going to be like. You can't even have pets 
because uh, you don't know if you're going to be able to get off and feed them in time, or you're going to be stuck on the set for 16 hours, and you can't just walk away and say, hey, I got to go feed my dogs. Uh, so it kind of made me uh, uh, really issue time scheduling. Now that I'm retired, I don't like to schedule a lot of stuff. The only stuff that I schedule, I use Google Calendar for. Uh, you know, doctor's appointments and things, I allow myself enough time to make or an occasional job I'll schedule and I'll know I have to try and be there on time or at least a half an hour early. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, I'm kind of averse to time management these days. And Alex? One thing I'll say in live production is like everything else, we say be, be 40% capacity or 60% capacity is uh, I leave a lot of time for error. <laughs> so, so so I I create huge gaps of I double the amount of time that I think it's going to take to do everything. Um, I have it. And, what, and when everything works, we are just sitting there noodling around and making sure that everything's just right. But there's tons of room to have things go wrong. For instance, when... Um, I generally, and I started doing this when I was DJing weddings, you know, 30 years ago, is that I would show up um, twice the the time that it took to get there. So it was an hour and a half away, or it was one and a half times the, the time it took to get there. So if I was an hour away from something, I would show up an hour and a half early. And if I was two hours away, I would show up three hours early. And if I was, because what I was doing is adding a gap. Now, what that how that magnifies itself is when I went to Tokyo, I was a day and a half early. <laughs> so so and and uh, and we got there a day and a half early. In fact, what we did is we sent our crews. We had one crew that showed up early and one crew that showed up late. And the the crew leaving San Francisco didn't get on the plane until the crew. It was usually a couple hours before they get on the plane by the time the crew landed, so that if we lost any gear in the in the in between, we would know and put it on that second crew uh, video. But when you talk about I mean, logistics of time planning, we would plan like when we're getting there and all of those things, we added lots and lots and lots of time. It's super valuable in a live event. It's very unforgiving and almost nobody else that we work with except for experienced event people will do that. They'll be like, oh, I can do it in two hours. I can, I set it up in the lab in two hours. If I can set it up in the lab in two hours, I'm gonna tell the client I need six. You know, and I'll and I'll and I'll I'll settle for four. <laughs> you know, like, but if I know that, I, you know, and so that's that's the kind of time frame you want. To, you want to keep on adding those buffers, and it really makes you look good, <laughs> like because everything just works. It makes it a harder conversation three weeks before the event when you're demanding all this extra time, um, and it makes you look good on on the during the show because you're calm, and the and the event just happens. Let's get into these questions, Bill. Our first one comes from Laura Thompson in Beaumont, Texas. Liberty, do you use a weekly time grid to plan your week and have you found a more effective tool? So, Laura, uh, hopefully if you can put in the chat somewhere. So I'm not familiar with what a time a time grid is, but if you're referring to the fact, do I have like scheduled days and set days for certain things, certain projects, tasks? Yes, absolutely. I <laughs> would not be able to do it. Um, otherwise, as I mentioned, you know, Sunday, my planning actually is Sunday, actually Sunday and Friday, really, because Friday is like looking at the next week. As I said, trying to shut down Calendly or something 
some of the other tools to just protect time from that perspective. And Sunday is really um, put, putting things in place, reviewing what's already been done. Do I need to send emails to the team to remind them of certain things, making sure I'm still working on this one, making sure that, you know, Calendly, I'm sorry, Zoom wise or like, did we get the confirmations on, you know, particular um, particular meetings? So, yes, uh, I definitely do that. And as has been shared as well is because I do start on Sunday. So it's not necessarily a typical like Monday to Friday, um, then the middle of the week. I also protect that time because I know that the beginning of the week is there's so much happening. And then, OK, here's my decompressed day, mainly creative or lighter task, because then it ramps up again um, towards the end of the week. Uh, next question. Next one comes from Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Do you use a high-tech or low-tech method of time management? Calendar time, task list, apps, or post-it notes and blank paper? What sequence of methods or combination of methods do you use for different projects or tasks? Go ahead, Bill. In this respect, iOS has changed everything for me because uh, for most of my career, I relied on calendars and post-it notes and other things. When I find, and I think it was originally the uh, skeuomorphic address book and me having one place to put all my contact and telephone numbers, when I realized that that would ping to my computer and other things would be synchronized. So losing the address book, and this was decades ago, did not lose my contacts. Some, a little light bulb went on in my brain, and I feel the same way about calendar. If I This system of being able to enter it once and have it show up on all the devices across my life in sync has literally changed everything for me. And it's just that idea of a centralized point of truth for scheduling has changed everything. Courtney? Yeah, I'm like Bill. I used to... Uh write everything on a calendar stuck on the side of the fridge. In fact, I still, I've got that, had that habit for so many years. I still have a new calendar that I stick on the side of the fridge. I almost never write anything on it anymore, but all my appointments would be written on that calendar on the side of the fridge. So every morning I get up, I could look and see what I'm doing today, the next day, the next day, or the next week. Uh, however, when Google Calendar came around and I discovered the fact that I could put it on my phone and on my PC, and it synchronized automatically between the two, and it would give me notifications uh, on you know 15 minutes ahead of when I was supposed to be somewhere, and it tied into all my contacts, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. That's what I moved to. I just use Google Calendar now for managing all my scheduling, and it's it's very easy because it interfaces with uh, Google Voice uh, control, so I can just you know be sitting in my car and make an appointment, and it'll put it into my calendar via voice. So this is blending like all my worlds together. So the, the work side, but then also personal side. I typically, I still do paper at times of just like writing it down, um, especially the night before, like having, I have this like small book that is literally only like, what's the next day that needs to happen? And it, it literally has maybe like three or four, if it gets beyond that, <laughs> a lot of the stuff below the fold is probably not going to happen. But so I can physically like check things off, but then I also have that, again, going back to the beginning of the week of like putting all of those things in place on my calendar. I also use alarms for like level three 
like press the red button type of things that need to like, because if I'm in the middle of a, a meeting or I know that there's something that needs to be done at an off peak time that I typically wouldn't do something, I have uh, alarms and it's probably like two or three alarms um, to help through that. Next question. Next question comes to us from Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. I've tried a number of work tracking tools. I'm not satisfied with the information they gather for billing. Does anyone have a recommendation for Mac or iPad? Go ahead, Courtney. Well, I I used to have this problem, too, for doing payroll uh, or for time cards. And there are time card apps that you can find for iOS uh, that are in the uh, App Store that manage your time, will keep track of your daily work schedule and uh, do a calculation of your total hours and overtime hours and so on once you enter all this stuff in. Another thing is if you have a payroll company, check their website because companies like ADP uh, or Paychex uh, will have apps that uh, you can use to run time cards on your employees and calculate the time cards and keep you in compliance if you're having to to do calculation on employees to comply with their payroll taxes and with overtime hours after a certain number of hours and so on to keep you in compliance. Uh, they're great for that. Uh, and they keep track of that and they maintain permanently in the cloud. So you can go back and look at a time card uh, later if there's ever a dispute. So I use a lot of those tools. Chris? Dave, specifically for the Mac or uh, iOS, I think you said I, or iPad, same thing. Um, there's an application that we use in our office called Harvest, and it allows you to create different tasks, which could have different billing rates uh, per client. You can sort by client, you can sort by job number, and you can tap it and say, oh, I'm starting to work. And then you can tap it again when you're done working on that task. You can change the task later. Um, if you forget forget to turn it off, which I do often, after about 12 hours, it says, really? You're still working on that? So it'll send you a little message. So you can go, oh, you can go back and you can turn it off and, and fix it. But uh, it's all in the cloud. You can use it on your computer. There's a little Mac menu pull-down thing, or you can use it on your phone. Um, we've used it for years, and it works well. And I think Harvest is also like integrates into some other project management tools, if I remember correctly, sure. like Asana, like, but it's just, yeah, just an add on um, to use for that. Next question. Also, well, it's, it's oh. called HarvestApp.com, I think. So if you're looking for it, Harvest Thanks, App. Walt Palmer in Lewis, Delaware says, is there a rule of thumb to the amount of time expected to return an email? I received emails saying, I wrote to you yesterday and you've not responded. I'm not aware of a specific time to respond or the need to respond at all. Jason. This falls back to one of my maxims, which is you have complete control over exactly one person in this world and it's you and uh, other people don't necessarily have a a rule of thumb that they follow through with. Um, It depends. To me, it's generally one business day, and if not, it's going to be a week. And um, that just depends on the structure and kind of the mean time between messages in that particular thread. Alex? I have to admit, I do my best to get back to people, but a lot of times if I'm in a project, I don't look at my email. (laughs) So so sometimes it could take a week for me to get back to somebody. And if they send me, there is an inverse relationship to the speed at which I'll respond to the length of the email. So um, if you send me a long email, the chances of me getting back quickly is very low. In fact, it may be over about 15 lines 
uh, on my email, the chances of me getting back to you ever is pretty low. Um, I don't, I don't really do long emails. Um, and so, um, so, so, I, you know, so I think that that's, that's usually part of it. Someone who wrote what you just saw there, that's something I would never write to anyone, not even, not even someone I didn't like. Um, and so coming back to people and giving them a hard time for being, being late on an email is, is just really bad form. <laughs> like just just to be clear, like don't don't be you know it's it's really hard to read things in the text. So if I'm going to come back and I need something from someone, it'll always be like, hey, just checking in just to see if uh, you know I'm working on this thing and I just wanted to. But but be super nice about about um, following up with people. Um, being curt over email is devastating to your own interaction with folks. And you can you know they say that trust uh, enters on foot and exits on horseback. Um, your relationship with someone can get poisoned really fast with one bad email. <laughs> so just always think about that before you hit send. Courtney? Yeah, I used to think, uh, you know, just give me a call, leave a message on my answering machine. At the end of the day, I'll check my messages and see about, you know, uh, what calls I need to return. But then we moved to email and then uh, it got to be where work scheduling, scheduling work, booking work, in other words, uh, People get really impatient uh, when they're looking for someone. They, they've got a schedule to fill. They'll send out an email. If they don't hear back from you, whoever responds first gets the job. So now it's a competition these days for booking work. You're in a competition on who can respond first. So I tend to look at my email a little more frequently uh, as long as I can. Because Sometimes you're put in a situation where you have to surrender your phone or you're on set somewhere and you have to keep it turned off so you don't know uh, you're receiving emails. I try and check it a couple of times a day. Uh, but if you don't respond quickly, they'll move on to somebody else. They'll say, oh, thanks for responding, but we already have somebody. Thanks. Thanks anyway. So uh, these days I try and respond quickly. Otherwise, as, as long as I want the job, if I don't want the job, I'll kind of let it go for a day and maybe it'll go away. And then I'll respond and say, oh, do you, did you find someone or do you still need someone? And uh, so I'll respond politely. So in, in case in the future they have a job that I want to work on, I won't completely alienate them by not returning their email, but I will respond and say, you know, sorry, I was tied up in production or something. I'll make an excuse. And, and you know, if they're telling me, oh, we've got a three-day shoot at the beach in the sand, I'll go, oh, gee, sorry I didn't get back to you. My schedule is changing right now, and I can't work on those days. Bill? I read that and I see an emotional manipulator and I don't want to deal with them at all, period. Um, that to me is a very passive aggressive way to start any kind of communication. It tells me this is probably a sales call and I do not want to deal with it. I will also say, though, that I've gotten more sensitive to building expectations with clients. Um, normally, my schedule is flexible enough where I can respond really quickly. And, and for people in office hours and things like that, it's not unusual for getting a ping and immediately responding. Um, on the other hand, I have clients that come here, and when they're sitting behind me, I might take seven hours away. We barely break for lunch, and we're getting something done. So if I'm not back to somebody in a day, if I've built the expectation that they'll hear from me always within an hour, and then I break that expectation by being away from seven hours, they get a little more titchy about it, I think. It's like, this isn't his norm. What's wrong? Is he ignoring me? Is he ghosting me? What's going on? And it's not that. It's just that 
I never built the expectation that some days I'm in session and I'm not going to respond. So I do pay attention to the expectations I build with various clients, authors, other people as to how I'm going to normally respond to them. And sometimes I'll admit I sit on something I could respond to right now just because I don't want to build the expectation in that particular vendor or client or whomever that I will always be back to them in 10 minutes. That's very fair and true. And just pulling in, um, Jesse says, being nice is most important. We have no idea what's going on in someone else's life. And that's really what I, I was going to say, like reading this while well, one Walt, I don't know what the relationship is that you have with that person, if it's a coworker, outside person. Um, but typically, one of the things I, I look at is, OK, people, that's their priority. Their priority is that they're looking for this response from you um, in setting possible expectations. I've seen people with email responders that say, hey, we get typically get back in this amount of time. If there are coworkers, like internally, we have a we have a structure of like email is responding this many times. If we've messaged on Slack and sent an email, that's like a level two. And then, hey, if you get the email and the text message. So it's it's really about understanding expectations and always giving people grace. So uh, hopefully that's <laughs> that gets rectified uh, moving forward. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada says interruptions are the biggest challenge for me. How many interruptions do you tolerate in your planning time? Alex? Uh, all of my notifications are turned off. So my I, my phone might have alarms like Liberty has, like I need to absolutely do something. Now, I will say that I pretty carefully check my between every meeting, like at the end of every meeting, I look at my schedule, like what do I have next? And I kind of have a, I have a picture of what's going on in my head of what that day is going to look like um, there. But outside of that, I don't have any notifications on anywhere. I mean, I turn everything off. I don't want something randomly talking to me about anything, you know. And if you're the kind of person that that calls me without texting me and saying, hey, if it's okay to talk right now, and you just call on the phone, either I won't pick up the phone, but I'll also decide I don't know if I need to work with you anymore. So, you know, like, you know, high, you know, what I consider high maintenance, if someone calls me straight out, it better be an emergency, like the house better be on fire, you know, for someone to call me without texting and saying, hey, is it okay to talk right now? Or more importantly, scheduling something tomorrow, uh, Liberty schedules out a day, um, unless you are my main client, um, scheduling a, a meeting the same day that that you know talking about a meeting to ha- happen later in the day uh, is not appropriate <laughs> like, so you know like asking someone to do that like hey let's meet at four how about let's meet tomorrow like you know and and really at least start there or ask what the day times are for people there's a process I have to admit that there's a you know calendly is a very uh here in in the bay area it's very uh, there's a lot of uh, controversy because uh, people don't like it, you know, like, and so there's people who use it all the time and they love it. The people who use it, love it. The people who are being pushed to calendarly often feel like it's like, a, you know, like, and, and I have to admit that I just never, I don't have any strong opinion about it, but I never schedule anything. If someone sends me a calendly, it be, means I'll figure it out some, at some point in the future. And, and that never, that some point never happens. So usually calendly is where, uh, back and forth go to die for me. <laughs> so. Jason, when I'm in flow, it is impossible to reach me electronically or by phone. Unless you were a family member who can open that door behind me, you can't reach me and and I wouldn't have it any other way. And I'll just add, um, just rereading what you said, like how many interruptions, Dave, you said, how many interruptions do you tolerate in planning time? Well, that 
depends on like how critical that time is because if I understand that if this does not happen like it throws the rest of the week month quarter off like that's absolutely no interruptions and I also communicate to those who could possibly be the ones interrupting because unless something is on fire whatever it is is probably not um, not critical so um, that's the way I look at it and it's taken time for me to give myself permission to say no you will not interrupt this time because I need it. Um, next question. Next one comes from Dorcas Wisdom in Bronx, New York. How do you manage making sure you spend quality time with your family and family events? Do you have a schedule? Alex. I schedule that too. <laughs> so, I, yeah, I definitely uh, generally dinner for in my family is seven o'clock. And so, um, you know, I'm usually done at whatever I'm going to do in the day um, is usually done by seven. Um, and then I'm usually off. And there's kind of a rule of thumb not, that I won't talk about work and I also won't talk about, I don't want to talk about anything wrong with the house or anything that has to get done after seven. Cause I'm in a, I'm in a landing procedure to go to sleep, you know, like, you know, and, and there's like, I'm an, I'm now, I, you know, we're, we're coming into the runway and there's a sleep, the sleep runway is about two hours long for me that, that just slowly cruises in. And then I go to sleep and I, I fall asleep in minutes. Um, and, uh, but, but, it, but one of the big rules is, I won't look at anything that would upset me. I don't look at any, I don't want to talk to anyone. I don't want to not, you know, I don't look at Twitter anymore. I don't, you know, like there's a whole bunch of things that just get turned off as I, as I just go into the cycle of, um, of just hanging out with the family. Uh, I also schedule time with my kids. I, I, uh, my, my two younger kids, uh, we, my son has something on Sunday. My daughter has something on Saturday that they choose to do. Might go to the farmer's market, might go to a movie, whatever. It's their time. And, um, and I do that every, every week um, that they're home. They're, in Pennsylvania right now, but, um, but they, uh, but we, we do stuff together. Uh, I didn't always do that. And I regret it. Like, you know, like no one ever says that when they're, when they're laying on their deathbed that they wish they worked more. So just always keep that in mind. <laughs> like, I wish I had just done a little bit more work. I wish I had put that last paper in. Uh, they almost always say that they just wish they'd spent more time with their family. <laughs> so, so, so really take that into, uh, take that into account as you, as you design your, what your life is going to look like, uh, that, you know, there was, uh, a solid decade that I was, I flew 250,000 miles a year. I was gone two thirds of the, of the year. My kids at first were upset and then didn't care. <laughs> you know, like, you know, like didn't notice that I was gone. Um, and, uh, I wouldn't, I, I got to where I am now because I did that, but I would never do it again. You know, like, you know, and, and so, um, I work hard and I, I, I don't mind working hard. I just, it's the travel and not having any time with your kids month, month after month is something that I would, I would avoid. Bill? This has always been such a difficult thing, and I don't think it's ever going to get any easier because you're you're making this choice. Are you working for their future, and that means you keep your head down and you do the work, or are you taking time for the present away from maybe building for the future? And I know as a small business owner who's had my own schedule for a long time, it was tough in those years. I had exactly the same feeling that Alex did. While I was trying to build my reputation and get enough clients to sustain us, I would just say I must spend my time thinking about making a living, period. And um, I left it to my wife uh, to, to manage the other stuff. Eventually, I was able to get to the point where I could start coming around, and I did feel bad about how much time I had spent away from that. She is also as competent, if not more competent in most things than I am. So, you know, the fact that she wanted to do that piece of the puzzle made it natural, but I did find myself having to f stop myself from 
always coming down on the side of now's the time to build an economic future for the family and I just have to think about that. And if it means I have to work three three weeks straight and not pay attention to the uh, family side of my life, I will do th- do that. But exactly like Alex, I look back and I go, I wish I could have balanced better in the early days. I wish I had the tools I have now that allows me to do more with less. So I could have taken some of that time and devoted it to the family early. Thank God I was able to get out of it as fast as I did and then spend the last half enjoying a better balance in life. And for me, yes, it's a hard yes. Um, My daughter and I, I think pretty much since she was like maybe two, um, for the most part, we have girls night and we have the song girls night girls night eh, eh, and she still sings it she's now nine she still sings it and so just carving out that time and I do my best that like if something pops up I as best as possible doesn't always work but that I can't do that because that like she needs to see as much as she sees her mom doing all this amazing stuff work-wise she needs to know that she's number one I'm showing up at family events and even if I have to travel for them I'm realizing even more and more now like that's important because with all like Alex said, all the things that might come with it that they're going to remember whether you were present or not. And so just really making an effort to uh, to make that happen. Bill, real quick. Yeah, real quick. I just want to say also families can be messy and, and that's part of what they're for. And, you know, you, they're your family. This is not something you can option out of. So if somebody in your family, close family or even slightly extended family is going through a crisis, sometimes that's going to pull you away from things. And that's a moral decision you have to make. Am I going to be here just for me and my team or am I going to extend myself out and try to help the people in my family who are having some sort of crisis? That can be very difficult to do. So. Just keep that in mind. Sometimes life's not easy. Next question. Uh, Paul Wallace, Austin, Texas. What about equipment and supplies storage? How do you manage your time spent on it? And what do you do with obsolete gear and unlabeled gear? For example, power supplies and wall warts. Courtney. Well, to answer the last part of that question first, I always label the wall wart when it comes with a piece of gear with the name of the gear that it goes with. And a little labeler, so invest in one of those uh, <clears throat> great brother labelers, which, you know, which we've talked about before—the little portable battery powered ones. Uh, and uh, as far as gear storage, out of sight is out of mind, and that's a problem for me because you know I'll, if especially with supplies, if I'll buy three, four printer cartridges because I got a good price on them, and I'll put them in storage, which is not at the house here, and I forget about it. I'll order more and not realize that I have four sitting on the shelf in storage. And so I end up with a lot of extra stuff. And as far as obsolete gear goes, um, hold on to it. Uh, I'm a pack rat and tend to not throw stuff away, which is a big problem because then it accumulates and you're, you're paying a lot for storage for then more than it's probably worth. But if you wait long enough, there's going to be some idiot that wants to rebuild a vintage Vic 20 or something. And those chips have become so rare that they'll pay $400 for that, you know, $30 item that's been sitting on a shelf for 30 years. So, you know, if you hold on to it long enough and pay three or $400 a month to store it, Hey, it may be worth a hundred bucks someday. Next question. Craig McFarland, Boston, Massachusetts. How often do you look back on your recent activity to check in on your productivity? Weekly? Monthly? Only when overwhelmed? 
Oh, that's a great one there. So I know that I typically am looking back, like I mentioned that that Friday day where typically we have some sort of team debrief and we look back at, at some things we're doing a much better job now, just even looking at um, some of the activities and what needs to, I'm in this mode of like, what do we need to stop doing? That's like been my, one of my things all year. What do we need to stop doing? What do we need to stop doing to make room and capacity for the things that we should be doing more? So I'll say week Weekly, um, weekly, monthly, uh, definitely quarterly. Alex? Uh, usually my measure is that I have a lot of things that are due to a lot of different people <laughs> all the time. So my productivity is usually putting out uh, each one of those, uh, each one of those on a curve. And usually those big sections of things that I have there are usually, I, I have... One of the things that keeps me productive, I have to admit, are meetings where I have to show what I was working on um, because then I have a deadline. And and so I, I I work very well against deadlines. And so so I oftentimes, if I'm trying to get something done, I, ha- I usually am presenting it to somebody uh, and showing them or having to deliver it for their feedback on a certain uh, schedule. And that usually keeps me going. It usually makes that the priority pretty quickly if, if that if there's a if there's a delivery somewhere. Next question. Next one comes to us from uh, Roscoe Jones in Madison, Indiana. Conflicts can take up large amounts of time. Do you plan for them or work hard to eliminate them? Jason? Bruce Lee said the best way to block a punch is to not be there. So my, my answer is both. You you work to avoid them. You try to get ahead of them. And then if if you can't avoid them, then you, you face them head on. It's that simple. Alex? Yeah, I mean, there's so many... It's a really complicated question. <laughs> so uh, the first thing, as Jason said, uh, you know, I, I really decide what I want to get into a conflict about. Uh, you know, there's a lot of things that I would con- consider first world problems that, you know, when people are, when there's something someone might do that I'm annoyed by or something like that, but I'm going to make a decision about whether I really need to have a conversation about that. Like, is that just something I can process or is that something that, that I need to actually have a conversation about? Um, also, if something starts to fester, it's much easier to handle immediately than it is to ignore it. So if, especially if you see conflicts between people or entities that you're working with, allowing that to just keep on, ma- um, metastasizing, uh, just means that it's going to get a lot, it's going to be a lot more to clean up later. So oftentimes I will try to clean things up relatively quickly. Um, if I feel like I said I misspoke in an important way, a lot of times I'll try to clean that up fast, you know, to to have that conversation. And a lot of times I'm open to having those conversations. And I I do leave big spaces, not big spaces. I leave a couple minutes, like a half an hour, an hour a day, to just to handle things that I didn't expect during the during my during my workday. And usually that's where I fit things like that into it. The other thing is is that I surround myself with people that um, are that tend not to be high maintenance. So if someone is conflict prone, um, I will tend to work them out of my, out of my life. (laughs) So so, so that, that tends to be, you know, it's not, not always the case, but, but if someone is going to be, if, if they, if they create a lot of uh, instability around me, especially at work, um, I tend, I have a tendency to not have them around for very long because I just, um, it, it becomes uh, difficult to get things done. Next question. Dave Troutman in Edmonton, Canada. Has this one, I find that more people involved in my planning, the more difficult it is to control the time drain. Any people skills I need to handle this? Jason? Yeah, it, it always feels to me that the an undisciplined group of people require two to the N number of people amount of time if it's in a meeting. And a disciplined group tends to, to be pretty efficient if it's under 10. Uh, as far as people skills are concerned, um, I, I would say if you're if you're in charge of the meeting, 
start it and just pull through and, and, you know, treat it like a plot and be like, all right, so here we are wrapping up. Bill? People have the most potential and the most variability in being able to benefit or detract from your organization as any asset that you'll ever deal with. And as such, you're going to spend time with this. Uh, You know, the balance of is this person contributing so much that I have to put up with some negatives or can I optimize this role with somebody? Can I find that magic person who just is easy to deal with and very good at what they do? That's the goal. But boy, it's hard to tip. Take care of because people are variable, not just in terms of what they bring to the table the first time you meet them, but how they evolve over time. Everybody's life changes. Sometimes that impacts your work. Alex? Yeah, being assertive about what you want to do helps a lot. Like I go, hey, let's have a meeting now. Like, can I like let's schedule it or let's do this in this time and, and, and not waiting for someone to to give you those things, but to put those out. Another thing I'll just say is I, I used to race horses, quarter horses, uh, race horses, and these horses were crazy. I mean, they were half thoroughbred, they were whatever. And I had one horse that would I could barely ride because it would kick me a lot, you know, or throw me and, and everything else. And my cousin uh, is a champion barrel racer and champion roper. And um, she uh, was visiting from Arizona. She got on that horse and it was as if it was a little pony. Like she literally didn't do anything different than I did, except she sat down on that horse and whatever she was doing, it just acted like a little pony that was the nicest pony you've ever seen before. And I realized that it's not always the horse. <laughs> just, just, you know, it, it might be me. <laughs> so, so, but it was, it was the most eye-opening thing I'd ever seen. It was just, I, I just had, this is the way this horse is. And when you look at, this is the way people are, just sometimes consider that it might not just be them. So. Uh, something that I found helpful is, if possible, uh, if this is a meeting, like when you actually start doing these team meetings, either having one, making sure you've got an agenda and you've got either you be the person who is like strict on that time because you're setting a precedence for how this will go moving forward and or bring in a project manager, even if someone on your team, but they're the ones that like in the meeting will be the individual who will keep that that time track so that one, you don't have to be the you don't it's like good cop bad cop so that that's their responsibility and that I find tends to help to just keep things much more organized and tight and again it's how how you start a thing is how you end a thing Alex last thing really quickly uh, let people choose their own timelines when can you get this done by when will you have this ready to go when you give it to them and they don't own it and when they don't own it they don't do it So, so like, when can you, you know, sometimes there's external deadlines, like how do we, and then it's how do we get it done by then, but it's asking questions of people around you of how to get it done or when can they have it done and then making plans against that um, uh, is really, really important. Next question. Next one comes from Roscoe Jones, Madison, Indiana. What's the relationship between time management and the stress level on any given project? Can you over plan a project? Jason? I'll answer the last question first. Um, You can badly plan a project, meaning you can outstrip your, your, you can over-designate for an inspecific amount of time, then the whole thing becomes a traffic jam. Um, So if you've ever over-planned, congratulations, I've never done it, but I have badly planned. Bill? For me, the answer is, oh, yes, and you should early in your career. You should try to figure out everything that could possibly affect your project, no matter what it is, and you will eventually, as you get more experience, cut back and realize what is actually important versus what you thought imagining it would be important. 
Well, that was a great conversation around time management because we are at time. Thank you so much to our producers uh, for all of your fantastic questions. And I see the chat was uh, on fire again today to our panelists for your insights and information and your stories, tips as well. And of course, to our production team for without which this would not be possible. I do want to say so tomorrow, Tuesday, we have Photoshop generative imagery. So that will take place during the second hour, a great AI conversation, as well as check your inbox for the fantastic email that gets sent out each and every day that gives you the schedule for the week. You can check officehours.global for the rest of the schedule. And speaking of, we have gone, let's see, 68,807 miles. That's 110,733 kilometers. That's more than 544 million bananas for scale. That's 2.8 times around the earth. Thank you so much, everyone. And we will see you in after hours. Bye. Sometimes it is the horse, but, but yeah. Sometimes it's the horse, but not always. It was yeah, Alex, that was one of your most insightful comments. I love that. Sometimes I'm the horse and I don't know it. I mean, you know. Everyone's a critic.